The Bob Murphy Show, episode 41. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. Got another very interesting interview for you, but before we dive into that, let me issue a disclaimer or a correction, in fact. Back on episode 34, when I was talking to Harvard Astronomy Chair Avi Loeb, you may remember, it was very interesting. We talked about black holes. We talked about this strange object called Oumuamua and whether aliens may have built it and sent it. We don't know, but, you know, could be. And we were talking, amongst other things, about whether you could live if you went into a black hole. And so the specific issue was isn't there this thing called the tidal force that would rip your body apart? And so the idea is that you're, let's say you're falling feet first into a black hole. And I know some of you clicked this thing. I thought I was going to hear about economics and this guy's trust me, folks, this will be, this will be brief. You're falling feet first into a black hole and other things equal the closer you are to a massive object, the stronger the gravitational force. And so strictly speaking, the force of the black hole pulling on your tippy toes as you're falling feet first, is greater than the force pulling on the top of your head, right? Because the length of your body, you know, the top of your head's actually farther away from the black hole than your feet are. And so if the gradient of the force is high enough, just even over the length of your body, then it could rip you apart, right? Because in a sense, the black hole is like pulling your feet harder than it's pulling your head and it stretches your body apart and it could kill you. And Dr. Loeb explained that actually, even though that's a real thing for these supermassive black holes that we were talking about, you could get through the event horizon before that would kill you, before the tidal force phenomenon or principle would rip your body apart. So in case you had been making your plans on erroneous, based on erroneous information, we're here to tell you at the Bob Murphy Show that actually you could survive going into or through the event horizon of a black hole so long as it's massive enough. Right? Just make sure you don't go into one of those like dinky black holes and get ripped apart. And you say, hey, Murphy, you misled me. Not my fault. I'm telling you right now, it's got to be a super massive black hole. Anyway, now for the correction, I was trying to explain and give the intuition behind where's this phrase tidal force come from. And then also to relate it to something more day to day rather than black holes and esoteric things like that. And so in case any of you listeners didn't realize this. I was explaining that it's, it's the moon and its gravitational force that actually causes the tides as we experience them, you know, Earth's oceans, the high tide and low tide. That's because of the moon and its gravity. And so I set a picture in your mind's eye that the Earth is in the center of your field of vision and the moon's off to the left. And so the Earth is just this sphere that's coated by a thin film of water from our perspective out in space looking at it. And so when the moon's on the left side, again, from our perspective, looking at the thing, the gravitational force of the moon pulls strongest on the water on the left side, right? The water that's closest to the moon, that's gets pulled the most by the moon's gravity. And so the water bulges to the left 
you know, as it's coating the earth, it kind of gets pulled up a little bit, this film of water. And so the people on that side of the earth are going to be experiencing high tide at that point. And then I said, and this is what was wrong. I said, and then on the opposite side where the gravity's not pulling very strong at all, they're going to see low tide. Cause I was picturing like the moon pulling. It's like a, like a sheet or something. And Oh, if you're pulling it to the left and that means it's got to be really skimpy on the right. And that's wrong. Actually, what happens is the the high tide is on would be on both the left and the right side of the plane, and if that's what you're thinking about it. And I guess the idea is because the moon's not pulling very hard at all on the water that's way on the other side, and so it's able to sort of you know drift away from the planet also. All right, so that's a minor correction, but I did say something that was wrong, and I just wanted to to uh, say that. So, so one of the listeners corrected me on Facebook or something. Okay. So there you go. Now, speaking of intellectual honesty and admitting shortcomings, my next guest, the reason I've always had a fond place in my heart with this guy, it's Carl Smith. He's an economist. And years ago, he and I had a debate hosted by the Mises Institute. It, it was a, a an online one, right? So we like logged in and people could come in and look at it. It was actually pay-per-view, believe it or not. It was, it was a big deal. And uh, it was over the effectiveness of fiscal stimulus, right? So he was representing the standard Keynesian view. And I, of course, was representing the Austrian view. And Carl afterwards admitted that I won the debate. So we didn't have like the the way that they do at the Soho Forum with the Oxford style official polling or anything. So there wasn't an objective metric. It was just in terms of, hey, you know, we said what we said and what do you think? And Carl admitted that he thought I won the debate. He He wasn't now a card carrying Austrian, like he still believed in what he was saying, but he admitted that I had made the stronger case in the in the time we had. So I thought, huh, that's that's a pretty stand up guy. That's pretty rare for an economist ever to admit shortcomings. So who is this Carl Smith, you may ask? He is a former assistant professor of economics at the University of North Carolina School of Government, and he's also the founder of the blog Modeled Behavior. So many of you who are econ nerds, you might you know, you often see people in the blogosphere linking to model behavior. So that's who Carl Smith is. He founded that blog. He's He writes for Bloomberg now. That's his main gig. And I just was trying to f- drum up guests that would be people you, that you don't hear on everyone else's podcasts. And I just remember, I said, you know, that guy, Carl, he, he and I had a good exchange in that debate. It was a very friendly debate, but but substantive. You know, we weren't we were disagreeing with each other and offering the listeners uh, different viewpoints. And so I thought, why don't I get him on here to talk about, again, the case for or against Keynesian fiscal stimulus and also monetary stimulus. And then also, though, I knew Carl knows a lot about environmental economics, and so, and that's also one of my areas, too. And so I thought probably he and I disagree on whether there should be a carbon tax, that, that sort of thing. And so that is the... I was going to say second half. I think it's probably more like three-fourths, one-fourth in terms of the timing, maybe two-thirds, one-third. But those are the two main things we go through. And this was not scripted. Right? It's not like I had a, a step-by-step thing. It really was a conversation. And it was, I don't know if you'll be able to tell from the tone of my voice, the, just as Carl was giving his answers when I was questioning him about fiscal stimulus, it was just naturally leading into the, well, wait a minute, but if you're saying that, then what about this? So anyway, I think it was a pretty good discussion. And... um in my mind, it it just reaffirmed to me that actually the case for fiscal stimulus is pretty weak. Like you'll see where I believe I kind of pushed Carl into a corner. That's my biased uh, evaluation of what happened. But 
in any event, enough of the preamble. I will turn over there. Last thing, tell you what, guys, because you've stuck with me so long here, I will not do a formal commercial ad for the uh, show. And what I'll just do is mention right now is save the date. So on Saturday, August 17th, 2019, I, along with Carlos Lara and David Stearns, are going to be in the Atlanta area presenting our case, um, the Infinite Banking Concept IBC, our seminar for, on that for the general public. So we don't have the venue nailed down yet. As soon as we get that down, I'll make the announcement as well. But just mark your calendars if that's something you're interested in. Again, that's going to be Saturday, August 17th, 2019. In the Atlanta area, we're going to be presenting, the Nelson Nash Institute is going to be presenting uh, on IBC for the general public. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Carl Smith. Well, Carl, it's good to have you here on the Bob Murphy Show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So as I explained in the formal introduction that I just gave to the listeners, Carl, uh, you and I battled, as it were, back in the day. Um, we had a, a debate on Keynesian fiscal policy or stimulus. And so the part of why I'm having you here is I don't, I don't want to just have people on with whom I agree about every little last jot and tittle. And so I thought it might help the listeners to have a discussion between people where we we do overlap a lot in terms of, you know, standard economic theory, but also we we do have some, I think, probably fundamental disagreements. But before we get into all that stuff, can you, I, I see now that, and I noticed on Twitter, like you've, you've moved over now, you write for Bloomberg. So do you want to just give a little, as, as much as you care to share about your, your details? And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you ever, were you ever actually in academia per se? And just, you know, that kind of stuff. How'd you end up where you are? Yeah. So um, I was a, uh professor at um, University of North Carolina for a while. Um, there, I started a blog called Model Behavior, which um, back when the blogosphere was a thing, uh, got to be pretty popular. Since that time, I've moved over like more into the public policy sphere. I've done some stuff at think tanks, and now sort of I have a column at Bloomberg. Okay, great. Um, yeah, that is funny. There was it when I had, uh, was it Alex Tabarak I had on? We, we were sort of lamenting how or reminiscing maybe is the right word, that, yeah, there was a golden age there where economists writing on blogs, that was really like the center of the universe. And then now it seems like that's been eclipsed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the the standard story is that we were more or less taken out by Facebook, right? So it used to be that you'd go on Google Reader and you'd read people who linked to each other. And so if you're in this sort of dense, like, conversation, that sort of drew a lot of readers in who were sort of like just observed by this conversation going back and forth. But now everything's about like going viral. And so it's more like one off, one shot, you know, 13 reasons why the economy sucks. Um, <laughs> stuff that gets to be really popular. And so I, I think there's still a niche like at, at Bloomberg where they, they want to do like more serious stuff. And they're, they're not under the same pressure as uh, some other places are. You know, the Bloomberg terminal sort of helps us out a bit. So at least for now, I don't know what the future is going to be. At least for now, we can do, I think, like not quite as wonky as on the blog, but, but wonkier than you could get away with just in like sort of the viral media universe. Yeah. And on my end, I've noticed, I mean, just in my own personal consumption, if you will, of that stuff that, yeah, now is just the pace seems to get faster and faster. It's like, oh, I don't really have time to read blogs uh. unless I'm stuck in, a, you know, in an airport or something but I can certainly download podcasts and have them, you know, playing in my car or something so I can multitask. So that's on my end what, what happened. So is that consistent with your experience or not? Uh, somewhat, yeah. I mean, the podcast thing has taken off. So like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing that now. And I'm not sure like if it's as big as a blogosphere or if it's bigger. I don't really have a good sense for it. But like, yeah, it's definitely like other, other means now. 
So why don't we start maybe with fiscal policy? So that's something. So may, maybe just for the listeners who haven't heard these distinctions, means regular economists nowadays when they contrast fiscal policy versus monetary policy, what what is that distinction? Okay, so um, both of those things concern trying to like stimulate the economy or make you know the economy grow faster when it's in a depression or when it's in some sort of slump. And fiscal policy usually refers to either the government spending more money, increasing spending, or cutting taxes. In either case, funding the change in spending or funding the change in taxes uh, with deficits. So there's an increase in the deficit. And the thinking is if the government goes out and borrows money and uses that money either to cut taxes or to increase spending, then that'll put like more money in the hands of people in the economy. They'll spend it. The economy, at least in the short run, will pick up. Monetary policy is similar, but does it through usually the literal printing of money. And that has the immediate effect in the bond markets of pushing down interest rates. And the thought is that then investors will go out and borrow more money. Uh, they'll use that to buy, you know, to invest in housing or other real estate or long-lived assets like that, hopefully like factories and things. And then that will stimulate the economy. So it's, it's two sort of like two divorced ways of, of trying to do that. One is through federal government spending or tax cuts. And the other is through the like printing of more money, which, which works its way through the bond markets. Thanks. Yeah. And so, let me present what I take to be Paul Krugman's view. And again, we're, we're jumping on this because Carl and I had this debate in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008 on you know, what should the government's appropriate response be. And so just to, as a point of reference, so Paul Krugman, as I understood him, had what I think he would call it a New Keynesian view in saying that, yeah, in general, we New Keynesians realize that you don't you would normally rely on monetary policy if there's a slump. So if aggregate demand is too low to provide full employment, normally the central bank would cut interest rates. And in practice, like you say, Carl, that means they would tend to create more money. And that would, for various reasons, push down at least short-term interest rates. And then that normally would be enough to stimulate consumption spending, you know, on the part of consumers, because now it's, it's cheaper to borrow and go spend, but also stimulate investment spending and so if that were, were enough to restore aggregate demand, there you go. But when there's a so-called liquidity trap, when nominal interest rates get pushed down to 0%, even with aggressive monetary policy, at that point, conventional monetary policy loses traction because for various reasons, it's hard to push nominal interest rates at least much below 0%. And so if, if there's still a shortfall in aggregate demand at that point, that's where there's now a role for the federal government to step in and spend more money than it takes in in taxes running a budget deficit. And that's the way to fill that gap in aggregate demand. So, so number one is, do you agree? Is that a, a fair representation of what the, like Krugman's position was? And then two, do you agree with that? Or are you now, uh, do, you, do you differ from that? I think that's more or less a fair representation. Where we get into like the weeds about this stuff is like exactly what it means to be like in a liquidity trap. So I think, you know, so Krugman and I differ here and I'll sort of explain it. I think technically he would say that there are things that the central bank could do, like even in a liquidity trap. So he has a famous thing, the credible promise to be irresponsible, which just means that like you're going to make the central bank makes these long-term promises to actually create inflation in the economy. And that, in the model that Krugman writes down, has the effect of like stimulating spending now. 
you can think of it. This is a perfect how it works. You could think of it as people trying to like get ahead of the inflation. So they know there's some inflation coming, and so things are going to be more expensive. So you might as well buy them now, and that sort of boosts the economy now. That's not a perfect telling of the of the model, but it, it gets it gets some of the gist of it right. Where I am is that like I think that like. Not only can they do stuff like that, but there, there's probably other things they can do, um, generally like signaling where they want the economy to go. I think that there are like other forms of targeting, like a uh, nominal GDP targeting that's got some nurse push that can work. But I, I think that at least in the last recession, the Fed was like reluctant to do that. And so for that reason, basically for their own like reluctance to like implement these policies, that monetary policy wasn't doing what it could do. And both of us think that if monetary policy isn't doing what it what it could or should do, that then fiscal policy can be used to stimulate the economy. So Okay, great. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, let me just yeah, let me just paraphrase that and and because I, I I agree with you that, that that is Krugman's position. And so that's yeah, when I was stressing it or explaining it, that's why I had him, you know, the hypothetical Krugman I was speaking for, saying conventional monetary policy you know, hits a barrier at the zero lower bound because normally if you're just buying bonds to push down the interest rates, once you hit the zero percent, you can't do anymore. Right. But you're right, Carl, I agree with you. He he does have like a famous paper when he's talking about Japan. And I saw him also when I was a grad student at NYU, Krugman came and visited the, I think he actually spoke at the Stern School of Business across the street from where I was. And he he must have been talking about Japan at the time. And he was saying that, yeah, my solution for Japan is that yeah, they need to. In other words, the the problem was the Japanese people and investors around the world trusted the Bank of Japan to be too responsible, and they needed to convince them credibly. No, no, we really are going to let price inflation start rising down the road. And I guess technically, because the the way that works is, even though nominal interest rates can hit the zero lower bound, if you think prices are going to rise more rapidly, that means real rates are still more and more negative. The more you expect that future inflation to be, right. and since it's really real rates that govern, you know, behavior, that's the way to effectively push down the real rate to be more and more negative if you get people to change their expectations about future price inflation. Yeah, I think that's right. And then, and so that's like why Krugman was in, so I guess in practice, it was kind of, I was getting a little frustrated because it, it seemed like they were dancing around the issue, like, like Krugman and Brad DeLong at the time. But I think what they were saying was, well, we've had mixed views about whether QE rounds of QE quantitative easing can achieve these goals, and so yeah, if they can't, then then by all means we got you know we got to run uh, budget deficits. But but in the end, it's all ways of boosting aggregate demand. Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, that's definitely fair. So along those lines, then can you just explain what what is it? What's so magical about spending? Because I think you know, like from a classical perspective and, and also from an Austrian perspective, it's like, you know, spending is not the hard part. It's, it's production. And, you know, that's, that's really the issue. And so, you know, just to go get people to go spend more money, like that, it, that seems like it's, it's too easy. It can't be that the reason we have a decade long uh, depression in the thirties is because people weren't willing to spend enough. That seems kind of silly. Uh, yeah. So, um, our position is that, uh, while normally, under normal conditions, it, it is in fact production that limits how much the society can produce, that there are these periods, and, and some of it is just like raw observation, where you have like long periods of elevated unemployment, where you have you know people who could be working, who were working, who tell us they're looking for a job, and you have like, you know in the old days especially, we could see this very vividly, you have like factories that are not running. 
right? So you, you have factories that could be producing things and you have people who could be working in those factories. Um, and I think the, the sort of aggregate demand explanation here is that in order for the factories to hire people, right, they've got to be selling goods so they can get money so they can pay those people. But when the economy is depressed, people aren't buying as much. And so the factories lay off people. That causes their incomes to go down and that causes there to be a general sense of like concern and fear about uh, the future, which has people like hold on to their money to spend even less. And so you come into like this self-defeating cycle where either consumers or businesses are holding on to like much more money than they would normally um, because they're afraid of the condition the economy is in. And that, that very action causes like the economy to slow down, to break down the, the normal process by which, you know, uh, consumers spend money or investors spend money. And then that has businesses work and those businesses hire people who, who then spend more money in sort of like the, cycle or wheel of the economy, it breaks down because, because you have like money seeping out of the economy into like savings that, that don't get spent. Okay. Um, and again, for the, the listeners here, my, my point is not to, uh, we're not having a debate here. I just, I'm generally want to have Carl, you know, spell out the implications of it. Much like I had, um, Carl, I had Warren Mosler on several episodes ago and I'm not by any stretch an MMT fan, but I just, you know, was asking him just, I want to know exactly how he thought of things. So let me ask you it this way, Carl, just to see how you connect these things. So, I mean, you can imagine a particular business, you know, a guy selling, I don't know, uh, little toy unicorns and he's just not enough. People are spending money on his, on his stuff. Right. And he's looking at the bottom line. His, his accountant, you know, tells him every month, no, you're in the red, you're in the red. And eventually he just, he goes out of business and he lays off workers. And so he might lament, you know, people just weren't spending enough at my store, but that per se is not a, a problem with capitalism or it's not, you know, you wouldn't, one would not say just for that one scenario, gee, it would be better if the Federal Reserve printed up some money and gave it to that guy's customers so they could buy more of his, his product. You would just say, well, no, apparently he shouldn't have opened that particular branch that, you know, the, the consumer demand wasn't there. Those resources were more urgently needed elsewhere in the system and his losses were the way of the economy, so to speak, you know, telling him that and laying off those workers was the way that those that labor could get released from that wrong application and get put back somewhere else um, where where it was better suited to serving the needs of the consumers. You know, something like that. Are, are you generally OK with that on a, on a micro level, that sort of talk? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, so I think that's, you know, when the economy is, what we would say, at full employment or when the economy is, you know, doing generally well, that's that's the dominant process in the economy is that uh, some people go out of business or other people are going into business. There's like creative destruction, you know, all that good stuff. Um, the dynamic that like we're missing is this. It's like, so people aren't buying, you know, toy unicorns or whatever it is. Then, you know, they're buying like toy X-Men or something like that. And so you you would expect in the economy for, you know, losses in demand in one sector to like be equal to like increases in demand in the other sector. So there's some guy who's like selling out of all of his stuff and he wants to hire more people. And so when the first guy goes out of business, those resources are released and they can find their way to the person who wants to hire more. Um, and that's sort of like, that's sort of like the natural cycle things are going well, but like by all appearances, and you know, we can talk about, I guess the empirics behind it. Um, there's a time when 
generally speaking, there's like less demand for stuff. And instead of like buying other things or different things, people are holding that cash. Okay, great. Yeah. And this just, I think it'd it'd be useful if we just push this a little bit. And some of this, it's not even like, I know where the answer is going to go. I just never, never explored this in this to this depth. So even on its own terms, though, strictly speaking, it's not an instantaneous thing. So I certainly get the distinction you just made there between, you know, what one particular branch expanded too much. And that means another branch didn't expand enough. And it's just a matter of reallocating the resources from one to the other. But even in that, you know, quote, normal business failure and reallocation, creative discovery and, you know, or creative destruction, all that stuff process there is some time lag, like the, the workers who get laid off from the, the store that was selling the unicorns and the guy who's hiring somewhere else, you know, for employees to be working the counter at the store that's selling X-Men toys. Those people could be unemployed for others like search costs in the real world. They might not automatically know next Monday to go report for work at this other place. Or maybe, you know, it's in a different state. So they got to sell their house or whatever. And it takes time to adjust. So even there, it's. It's not that, let me put it this way, the optimal unemployment rate is not 0%. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm okay with that. And I mean, I think that like, you know, at least in traditional like Keynesian talk, there's a lot of worry about the difference between, I think what you're calling, what you're talking about, which they would call like frictional unemployment, mm-hmm. which is that it just takes time for you to like work yourself through this process and cyclical unemployment, which is when the sort of unemployment rate rises way above anything that we would normally attribute to like these frictions in the market or difficulty finding out what the next best thing to do is. Um, and it's the cyclical part that we're like concerned with it's the cyclical part that we think could be like beneficially reduced if, um, if we had more money in the economy. Mm-hmm. And so again, permit me to belabor this. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's, um, I think we're agreed if it really were an example of what we'll call frictional unemployment, where there really was a genuine mistake that, you know, the one entrepreneur was just overly optimistic. He opened up a store branch that he really shouldn't have. He hired people who didn't belong there. And, you know, and we, could have, we could more carefully define what do we mean by those terms to say they don't belong there and that kind of stuff. But um, it would retard the economy's uh, response to that, quote, mistake if the central bank were to print up money trying to just goad consumers into maintaining the profitability of that unicorn store. If that really shouldn't be an operation that it would be better if the, if the central bank just kept the money stock constant because the, you know, the spending drying up in one area would be ultimately offset by the expansion of spending elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if, if all of that was frictional, that would, that would probably be the best thing to do. Um, you know, I think if we think about like, what's the, what's the downside of that? Um, I have to think carefully about whether or not, I mean, I think you, you still would say as I'm working this through, you still would say that like the central bank putting more money out there would like create like real inefficiencies in the economy. I think what none of us doubt is that it would create inflation. Mm-hmm. So if you were in a situation where one guy is producing something that people don't want, but another guy is, and you try to put even more money out there to, to hold up the business that isn't doing it, well, then there's going to be sort of like more money out in the economy than stuff that people like want to buy is stuff that's like worth buying. And so instead of like, you will prop up the, the bad businesses a little bit, but what you'll do is like worsen the sort of over demand or the like lack of stuff from the good businesses and their sort of like eagerness to try and hire people will cause like wages to go up and then 
that'll, the difficulty in selling things will cause them to like charge higher prices and that'll ripple through the economy and there'll be inflation. Um, so it's definitely going to be inflation and almost certainly, you know, I mean, you'd have to, I guess, think carefully about the particulars of this. I mean, if, if just like zero people <laughs> want to buy your stuff, mm-hmm. then you, even, even printing more money is not going to help you. But in most cases, it probably would. It probably would prop up bad, bad businesses a little bit longer and like retard that sort of like efficiency process. Okay. And, and we're right. So I think we're largely in agreement on that. So then I suppose coming from an Austrian perspective, I might say something like, suppose for the sake of argument that there were a bunch of entrepreneurs who made genuine mistakes Right. And we can, you know, let's let's postpone for the moment, you know, well, why would that happen? Why would it happen in clusters or, you know, why would there be waves of these, you know, correlated errors? But if it were the case that Jesus across the country, like, man, a lot of entrepreneurs simultaneously made mistakes. Couldn't the correct thing in that situation be to let, you know, the actual unemployment rate go way up, even into double digits as the economy sort of digested those mistakes and gradually reallocated them to the right. So I guess what I'd be saying is, isn't it at least theoretically possible that the quote frictional rate could shoot way up temporarily, at least in response to some, for some reason, a a correlation of mistakes by a bunch of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, like, especially like if you had, and I mean, this this is the cases where we we debated a lot. If you had like a, a sudden realization by people that these mistakes had, that a bunch of people had mistakes. Um, if the mistakes sort of like slowly piled up over time, it's hard to say exactly what would happen because you would think that also the wins would be piling up. And so like the incentives people, so, so the nineties would be kind of an example of this, right? So you have like these, um, some companies that are like, you know, doing dot com stuff and like they're failing, but other ones that are succeeding. And you would think that like the winners, the demand of the winners were creating would sort of like outweigh the sort of loss that the losers were creating. And so like churn would be really, really fast. Like there'd be lots of people like quitting their job or like, you know, um, getting laid off. But those people would be like immediately, like not immediately, but those people would be faced with also all of these like help wanted signs everywhere from like all the winners who were winning it. So, so if, if they built up slowly, then you think they, they might match, they might still match, but you know, search costs are real. So, so even in that scenario, Friction unemployment could go up. I think the scenario where it's most realistic that you'd have like mass, like an increased mass of frictional unemployment is if all of a sudden you realized that like these investments you're making or these like businesses you were, you were pushing like are not good. Um, they were dependent on like a view of the future that is not going to materialize. And so all the entrepreneurs in that sector like suddenly like dump their workers and now they're like got to find something. So I think that's possible. I mean, we see stuff like that when, um, you know, it's like an oil price crash. So get like, especially in like say Texas, you can get like really strong rise in like unemployment in Texas because uh, of the oil price crash. And we don't think that that's like necessarily a cyclical thing. This is like a result of, um, you know, changes in the price of, you know, real sort of shock that happened to Texas. Okay, great, great. Yeah. So just to put it in that framework then, yeah, in terms of relating the Austrian view, so they, whether you, you know, agree with this or not, whether one agrees with this or not, the idea is that like, for example, the housing bubble of the mid 2000s, Austrians would say was fueled in large part by overly easy monetary policy, you know, under Alan Greenspan. And that 
caused too many real resources to flow into housing. And so then when the bubble finally popped, that had been those had been genuine mistakes and those workers needed to go into the other sectors. Like, so the, the correct response was not to quote, save the housing sector. The correct response was to let housing prices crash because that was the, you know, they had been bid up to artificially high levels and you needed to give that information to everybody so they could, you know, people who were building houses needed to go do something else. And the only way for that to happen in a decentralized framework is for unemployment to go up. And then over time, yeah, they get allocated elsewhere and, and they take pay cuts, right? That in other words, it's, right. it's painful. The workers involved don't like it, but that's the whole point. If you, if you're in an unsustainable boom where people think they're richer than they really are, well then the realization of that obviously is a letdown, like psychologically, like you realize, Oh, we actually weren't that wealthy. And so it's, it's, it's in other words, it's easier to get hired into the wrong sectors in a boom because you're getting bid away with higher wages right. and then the reverse is more, is more painful. So so anyway, I mean, that's the, the basic Austrian story. And I guess, so how, how do you, you obviously think there's a role for government to at least cushion the blow after the, you know, the crash. So what, what would you say to, to counteract that? Yeah. So, so the first thing I would say is at least, you know, this is, this is, you know, what I'll tell you and probably why, you know, more willing to come on to this stuff is that, um, the fundamental like disagreements, I think get like exploded, uh, by politics and the fact that like, you know, the policies that the government are going to take are on the line. And so, you know, in, <laughs> in private and like complete secret, I don't, I don't think that like Krugman or even DeLong would probably deny that like some of what you're saying is true, right? That's a, that is a effect that can happen. Um, I think at the time they probably would have thought that like housing looked like that, that there were like too many resources devoted to it and that like some resources needed, needed to move. I, I think famously did not think that, <laughs> that like, uh, that actually in fact that America is going towards a housing shortage, but that's, a, that's another issue we can like say for a little bit later. But like what they would say, and I think this is, it's right, is that there's side effects from this. So that's not the only thing that's going on. So as all these workers are sort of moving out of like the housing sector, like it causes a general sort of, the easiest way to put it is like scare to go through the economy because part of their move is not just that they're dislocated, but like anyone that they were doing business with is now dislocated. So I'm a, you know, construction workers working in like Orange County or someplace like that, building like massive expanding the suburbs. And then suddenly we all get laid off. Well then, you know, the, the stores that we were going to like don't have any customers anymore. And, um, you know, all the people who we were, we were doing business with, if like, you know, the power company had built out like infrastructure for us or whoever, whoever was involved, lumber company was supplying us with lumber. Um, all of those people too, they're ripples through the economy because it's like an interconnected web and that those ripples cause fear to sort of spread about, you know, who, what the consequences of this big shift are. And people's response to that fear is to sort of like stop spending less overall. And that actually worsens the dislocation that was already happening. And so you get like this sort of like excess dislocation when these things happen. And so the reason, so the trade-off you would say is, okay, so suppose that, you know, we could have like lots of debates with them. Suppose somebody were to, what we really need to do is like cushion this housing blow. Like, I think, you know, gun press their head, they're going to admit, yes, this is like going to cause inefficiencies in the housing sector. But the reason we think it's worth it is that like there are these side effects to like mass dislocation, which in general, or the biggest one is uh, a generalized sort of like fear in the economy that gets people to like retract. Um, 
I think I think most economists are on that. I mean, I think there there's some like super super pure like Keynesians who might say that like it's not dislocation at all. It's just like animal spirits or something like that. Um, and you know, I wouldn't get on that train. I would I would say that like what you're calling animal spirits is really like an overreaction to like actual dislocations that are happening. So like you could even use the Texas example. So for a country that was like completely dependent on oil, right? So the oil sector it has to shrink, you know, by ten percent. But some places completely dependent on oil, there's gonna be a mass breakout. <laughs> across mm-hmm. the country of like what that means. And that freak out is like what's going to lead people to be like, well, I'm not going to buy a car. I'm not going to buy a house. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff because I don't know how this oil thing is going to shake out. Um, and then that sort of like, you know, secondary effect can actually like snowball into something that's worse. I think that's sort of like, that's sort of like the middle ground, like what I would think of as like most New Keynesians would get on board with that. Most market monitors would get on board with that. There are probably some pure Keynesians who would be who would say no, that like we don't think that like the economy can handle all these dislocations and just there's nothing fine, you know, like without there really being any change. It's just like people for whatever reason or stock market for whatever reason just like has an irrational bubble or an irrational collapse. Um but yeah, so some so rambling now, but like <laughs> my views are takes what you're saying as like as a part of it, but says there's like this other like cyclical effect on it that actually can be worse than than the sort of primary dislocation. Okay, great. So I think we're really zeroing in here on the disagreement. So I, you know, a minute ago I posited one extreme end where all of, like the the, the economy wide reduction in spending really was because of genuine error. Right. Just like imagine just if, if just about every business realized, oh my gosh, we totally screwed up. We expanded more than we should have. So now let's flip it the other way. Imagine there's nothing quote real that was going on, but for some reason, just about everyone in the economy all of a sudden becomes very fearful about the future erroneously. Like maybe some rumor spreads right. through that's that's incorrect and they all cut their, their discretionary spending by 20%. And so am I right in and arguing that, that you would say, look, there's no there's no physical constraint here. It's not like the production possibilities frontier has shrunk. And so if over the next 12 months, unemployment is higher, factory capacity is bigger, and so on, that's just lost potential flow of goods and services we could have enjoyed that we won't. And there's no real reason for it. Like, like literally, quote, real reason. There's, there's, that's just lost enjoyment that we don't get merely because of the psychological, irrational fear and so in a situation like that, if the monetary authorities could perfectly offset that, then that would be a good thing. That that's, that's extra output we would get at, at no cost. Right. That's exactly right. So I think those are probably like the, the, the two extremes of the view. And like, so on one side that like all the dislocation is real, all the dislocation are actual mistakes. On the other side that none of it is real mistakes. It's all just animal spirits. It's all just like irrational exuberance or irrational pessimism that like sweeps through the economy and sort of where you might fall down on this is like, you know, what do you, what do you think the mix is? So like, you know, in real business cycle theory, essentially most of the people there say, well, people are, people are in the end. Like they may not appear this way to you, like in everyday life, but if you like measure them, they're in the end fairly rational. And so we actually don't think that like, any of these sort of animal spirits or even just like general pessimism from a dislocation has any role. 
And those people think that essentially monetary policy, you know, doesn't do anything um, good, <laughs> at least, you know, maybe it can do some things that are bad, but it can't do anything as good and certainly not any sort of fiscal policy. And so then you kind of like gradually go over New Keynesians are like, well, people are like kind of rational, but like, you know, um, you know, or I guess, you know, if you want to make the scale, like market monitors say people are mostly rational. Markets are usually priced things at the, you know, right time. But there is this sort of like special thing about money and about liquidity that like it's it's not irrational. It's smart. Like actually when when you're uncertain about the world to like hold on to a bunch of money, but it has this like negative effect. And then like New Keynesians are go a little bit further and are like, well, it kind of is irrational actually. And, you know, it messes things up. And so we actually think there's an even more reason to do it. And then, you know, over to full on Keynesians who are like, yeah, it's complete nuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and like, you should, you should just, I mean, I mean, I don't know if, if what Moser said about this, but I know some of them are like, well, you should just guarantee everybody a job all the time. And that'll be fine because like, I, I don't, I don't exactly know why to be actually, to be certain because like it has in my mind, all sorts of microeconomic problems. But like, if you thought like all these fluctuations were completely irrational, then just saying, look, if you happen not to have a job, just show up and like, we'll give you one would be costless because like, there's nothing real going on here. It's all in people. It's all in people's heads. Okay, great. Yeah. And you, you did. Have, so, so who would be, um, just for the listeners that like they know who, who the Keynesians are, the market monetarists, we'll talk about them in a minute. That's guys like Scott <laughs> Sumner, the um, real business cycle people. Is that, is like Ed Prescott? Would that be a, a, a name yeah, for, for think, that? I think of the people who are like hanging out now, maybe like Casey Mulligan, mm-hmm. like when we were having the discussions about like what was going on during the actual crisis, Casey was pretty hardcore on like, you know, he doesn't think that any of it's, that, that any of it really is like, attributed to like irrationality that like if we want to figure out what's going on we need to look at like real things like you know changes in unemployment benefits or people switching from construction to service and that like that's where like all the action is so casey you know just thought that there was i mean ed Ed prescott is probably you know on the founders um but like uh that's somebody who was like i guess in the discussion who was who was like hardcore or that like, um, you know, people, people are rational enough so that like we can, we should be able to attribute all of this to like real changes in the economy. Mm-hmm. And actually I remember reading, um, Eugene Fama afterwards, he, he did deny there was a housing bubble or he said something like, well, the word bubble is operationally meaningless. You right. know, the kind of argument that if, if everybody knew there was a housing bubble, then prices would have come down that kind of deal. Uh-huh. So he said, yeah, I admit prices went up and they came down, but that happens all the time. Da-da-da-da, you know, that kind of stuff. So, right. uh-huh. so let me, let me push this as a tiny bit more here. So let's assume we are in that scenario where the whole community is gripped with this fear that, we from our omniscient position as the narrators know is actually unfounded and they all want to increase their, you know, their real cash balance. They all want to double their real cash balances, right? They, they right. The, the amount of money, you know, it's so that in practice, that means they restrict their discretionary spending in order to build up you know, their cash under the mattress or, you know, in a safety deposit box, let's say just to, for, to have concrete ideas here. And doing what they really ultimately care about presumably is the purchasing power of that, you know, that cash stockpile. And so two questions. One is in a classical view, wouldn't just prices pretty rapidly fall. Thus the community quickly achieves its desire that even though there's the same total number of dollars, if prices in general get cut in half, now everyone's cash balance is 
you know, twice as, as much in real terms. And then they go back to their normal spending patterns. But now, you know, everything costs half as much. So there's no need for the government to step in. Or then the other thing is, even if the government does step in and basically like double the quantity of money in order to, you know, cater to it. So it's like, oh, wait, we don't want everyone to cut spending. Let's just double the amount of dollars and hand them out. Wouldn't people then see prices rise? And wouldn't they just then try to save more? Because the whole point was, in other words, you're, you're not making them unafraid. If they, if they were afraid right. by printing more dollars, that might not solve the problem of prices rise. People might say, oh, geez, prices are rising. So I need even bigger cash balances to alleviate that irrational fear. Right. And so like the other, yeah, you're exactly right. And so the thing that you have to like add on to this notion that there might be irrational fears like going through the economy is that like prices might be like state sticky or there's some prices that are like really slow to move and there's a lot of debate over like which ones those are <laughs> and like you know how do they affect any things but like the traditional position traditional and like it makes the models really easy is that like the um the the stickiest price or the hardest price to move is people's salary or wages right um and the idea there is that like employers don't want to like outright cut wages because this is like horrible for morale and um employees that you have have already sort of like gotten themselves into some sort of situation this is this is a particularly more market monitors view they've you know written contracts they've like bought houses they bought cars they've like made obligations based on some particular view of the world and then if you suddenly like cut their wages right like they, they may not make their mortgage they may not make their car payment this is extremely distressing for them and that's bad now for the economy is worse but it turns out if you just like fire some of them or you let some of them go, really bad stuff is going to happen to the ones that you let go. But see, they're not here anymore. <laughs> and so that that doesn't like affect like all everything that's going on in your business. And so in this sort of like, you know, self-interested way, but, you know, like um, that's normally how we think, you know, markets work. And it's normally like 99 percent of the time good. Um, you push all you push these workers like out into the unemployment because like you don't want to like be responsible for like cutting the wages of everybody of all your workers and so because of that it takes like a long time for um like wages to go down like you'd have to see like those people who flooded out into unemployment like slowly get hired at like lower wages and then like eventually like the sort of workforce could turn over but that could take like you know years and years and years for the entire workforce to turn over and there's some people who are just like sort of hanging on to their job that they got a long time ago at this inflated wage with like employers like reluctant to like cut their wage. So this is like the, the, um, you know, more of a market monitors view about like how, how that would happen. But to make these things work, there's gotta be something, some sort of price in the economy. That's like, that doesn't change. If you had an economy that was a pure commodity economy and some people argue this that like, okay, so one of the reasons why the gold standard might've worked better in like the 1800s is because the economy was like way more hooked up to commodities and particularly like agricultural prices. And so when all these sort of agricultural prices fell effectively, like the wages of like being a farmer fell, right? And throughout the entire economy rippled the sort of like, you know, uniform drop in how much, you know, how much spending power people had and so, and, and really how much income they were or what they were willing to accept for their labor. Um, and so the economy reached equilibrium. And so like, you know, food was cheaper and so you could buy more food and like most of the other sort of the stuffs of your life were like commodity based. But as we like 
moved out of a commodity economy, it's like harder, like like services and things that are like that don't have as much of like a physical component. Um, the prices in them are like much slower to move. And so that's why like progressively, like the economy got like worse and worse and worse. So we get, the response to like the being on goal got worse and worse and worse um, over time. This is our thinking. Okay. So, so, so yeah. So, so you're saying though, that it, it's wouldn't near, even if we were in the world of a purely psychological f- driven fear that, you know, then there was no real counterpart to it where it, if we lost output from that, for that cause, that would sort of be, you know, there no reason for it. It would be dead weight loss, if you will. Um, you're saying a necessary component for that explanation to really go, or, or the reason you would need the monetary authority to step in, you do have to invoke sticky prices or wages at some point because otherwise prices would just adjust. No, that's exactly right. You have to okay. invoke some sort of sticky thing. Okay. And so then the second half then, and then I promise we can move on, is um, <laughs> the, uh, so, okay, let, let's say we're in that world that, oh yeah, prices are sticky or some prices are. And that's why when the community for their irrational reasons wants to double their real cash holdings, they can't just let prices in general get cut in half because there's, you know, there's maybe unions or whatever, this, this morale thing, wages are sticky, so they can't cut prices in half. So the authorities come in and they double the amount of dollars, but then wouldn't that cause price inflation to be higher than what the community originally forecast it would be? And then well, wouldn't they then need say, oh, I don't need to just double my real cash balances. I need to triple them now or, or, or nominal cash balances. I need to triple them because prices are rising more rapidly than I realized. Well, so like in theory, you know, and I think, I think there's some new Keynesian models where you, you could actually sort of like get this to work perfectly. If you, if you adjusted like the money supply like exactly right, um, then what you would do is like when people got like more afraid and wanted to, to like like hoard more cash, you like put more cash out there, and so their actual what they were spending didn't change. And like because what they're spending doesn't change, then like there's no pressure on like businesses in the economy to raise prices, and so we don't actually get the inflation right. And most people in the sort of like aggregate demand world think that the initial impact of like more money is not inflation, but inflation will come later. And in the new Keynesian models, you can be so slick <laughs> as to like inject money in when people are afraid and then the everything will be fine because they'll save that money. And once you see that their, their fear calms down and they start spending, then you like pull it back out, right? And so as you're pulling it back out, that sort of like, causes there not to be like this huge excess demand out there. You've totally stabilized demand at the like correct point and you just go on like nothing happened. Like the 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 central bank or whoever is good enough. So they raise and lower interest rates exactly to offset um what people's like irrational sort of like senses are. And then you never see even the people themselves, they never see any boom. You just have like a period of time when like interest rates go down really low and like, you know, companies hold on a bunch of cash and they raise interest rates again and they get rid of it. Um, and everything is balanced. So now it's going to be hard. Like as you get like away, you consider that like real dislocations are more and more important. It's going to get hard for you to be like that slick about it. But still, you would say that, that you can like reduce, you can ameliorate the impact of this cycle by 
injecting liquidity when liquidity demand is high or injecting money when it is that people want to like, you know, hoard more money or save more money and then drawing it out or injecting less like when people like do Mm -hmm. or do you want to spend? Yeah. Now, one of the things I like about the so-called market monetarist, even though I'm I'm not a market monetarist, I have fundamental disagreements with Scott Sumner in particular. Uh But one of the things, because I imagine a lot of the people hearing our discussion would say, wow, this sounds like, you know, the central banker has to be a a surgeon with a scalpel. And in practice, I don't, you know, that's not how I picture people, especially if they're appointed through a political process and there's lags and things like that. And so part of the appeal of the, of the market monetarist is they, they don't want there to be discretionary policymaking. There's a, a pretty simple, straightforward way in which the quote market determines the money stock and things like that. So do you want to maybe just speak a little bit about that and what, what, why is it called market monetarism? Yeah. So the reason it's called market monetarism is because exactly right. Instead of there being like this sort of you having the federal reserve having models of the economy and understanding exactly what's going wrong or exactly what's going right. You say that's, that's unrealistic. Human beings can't do that. So we set out some sort of like a market-based measure and like it differs on who like the particular market monetarists are, but like one that like it's gotten you know a lot of people's attention is you set out sort of like uh, nominal GDP in the economy or overall spending, which is something that like individuals on the ground are determining. This isn't something that the, the government's determining. It's something people are determining, and you just watch that and try to keep like that as steady as you can over time, right? And so we have like a sort of view that people. People do try to like make these long-term decisions. They do try to make contracts over time. And so if you're able to like sort of stabilize spending over time, then that will have like a self-reinforcing positive effect where even if something bad temporarily sort of happens, there's a general knowledge in the economy will look, you know, spending is going to prop up somewhere because I know that like the Federal Reserve is going to react. So I don't even have to get freaked out in the first place about like the spending change. And that should like drastically ameliorate the effect of these sort of like real dislocations. Um, You probably can't do it perfectly, which is why like a lot of market monitors have this idea of following what we call a level target, which is basically to say like, we think that like over time, the path of spending is going to grow at 5% a year. And so there's a boom at some point that we didn't see coming and we didn't have any control over it. And spending grows at 6%. What we're going to do is then sort of like offset that the next year with like, you know, look, you know, saying that we're going to like raise interest rates to try to get spending down to like 4%. And the, the good of that that we think is that when somebody was making a contract before this boom happened, they were expecting the stable level of spending to go on. And so you're just going to like fulfill the expectations of these like nominal contracts that sort of exist in the economy. And that I think is a difference of like market monitors. You're essentially saying that like one of the major frictions is some, is some kind of contract. And it can either be like the nominal contracts that people have on their houses and cars and stuff like this, or it can be like this implicit contract that like employers and employees have about like, you know, I'm going to come here for the salary and, you know, I'll get certain rates over time. Um, and you you make it so that those contracts like work out in nominal terms, like the way that people are going to expect that they're going to do. And then you let the real economy just sort of like shift around like however it needs to in order to make that work out. 
Is that selling by anything? I don't know. So no, I'm so into yeah. this world. I don't want to get to say. <laughs> no, 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 that's no, that's great. Um, yeah. So one one distinction you made there, I want to make sure the listeners get is between targeting the rate versus the level. And so, yeah, n- normally, like right now, they say, oh, the Fed has an inflation target of two percent for you know the, the consumer. Uh, what, what do you call it? Personal consumption expenditures. Uh-huh. And the idea is that the Fed is a little bit if it undershoots a few years in a row, like oh, it was only one point eight percent for three years in a row, they still are shooting at two percent for the next year. Whereas if you're so there, you're targeting the rate, right. and so every year you just try to over undershoot the particular rate of growth. But targeting the level means that yeah, at a given point. You just forecast forward and say, what would the level of nominal GDP be in this, you know, 2021, 2022, like that. And so if you fall short in terms of the annual growth rate a few years in a row, then the gap between the current level and what the level was supposed to be gets bigger and bigger. And so then you let the economy, quote, run hot for a while to catch back up to that to that level. So that's an interesting distinction just in terms of what is it that you're, you're targeting. So how do you know if you're supposed to, you know, let it run hot or cold to use those metaphors. Um, but the other thing too, that, and I don't, maybe you don't buy to this particular aspect of it, Carl, but I know Scott for a while, he was saying, look, there's no reason that a group of federal reserve officials can forecast the future better than the whole market. Right. So why don't we quote target the forecast so that you have like contracts on NGDP levels for over you know the next five years, and if according to them, which they're constructed in such a way that so that if, if the NGP hits a certain level, then the you know the owner of the contract gets paid a certain amount. So it's like using markets to forecast particular macro variables with the wisdom of crowds, and there's real money on the line. So that's why you'd expect it. You know, it's not going to be perfect, but you'd expect people to get that right more than just a bunch of pulling a bunch of experts. And so you know, he's saying that yeah, the Fed should just adjust. It's what you know. It's buying and selling decisions of assets until the market is forecasting that it's going to hit its correct targets over time. So it might be wrong. It might under or overshoot. But that's the, our best guess as to what NGDP is going to be in the year twenty twenty three. Is what's the current market forecast where there's real money on the line in those prediction markets? Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, like where people might differ on that is exactly how you implement that. Um, but like, so when I talk about it, I usually emphasize, like I just did, like people have these contracts, whatever. And so we could imagine there also being like an NGDP futures market. And if it was big and if it was liquid enough, I think that it, w- it would serve as a reasonable guide. I'm probably not as confident as Scott that like you could create a market and then just like turn it on autopilot like to that market. Um, and he's, he's devised like various uh, schemes in the past. I don't know exactly where he is like in his thinking on this right now, but he's devised various schemes in the past where like there were no decisions by the Fed. It wasn't even like, you know, here's, here's the rule that we promised to follow and we'll always follow it. More than that, it was just like automatically when NGDP futures rise, the Fed ends up, you know, selling assets. And when NGDP futures fall, the Fed ends up buying assets because it's like using those assets as the very thing to like conduct monetary policy. Um, you know, I'm more skeptical about like that level of going into it. Not, not because I have any like distrust of, of like markets generally, but just that, um, you have such a, you have such a big institution and like, you don't have like an enormous amount of experience with these type of types of markets. So they're not like, um, you know, I don't know, like 
gold markets or wheat markets, something that's existed for like a hundred years. So like everybody knows exactly like how this thing is gonna fun, you know gonna work. And what if it's like you know certain investment banks come to like dominate these markets and you know like there's you know on, on average there's like you know the prices go right, but every once in a while there's some sort of you know uh, either like something like a bubble. I mean, I, I kind of feel fine on what he's saying, but still like there's something like a bubble or something like a crash that like sends you like often, often the wrong direction. Um, and so like, that's why I probably take a step back and you know, say, so use that as your guide and you like try to like target that, you know, at the time, but like the actual knob is still, <laughs> it's still turned, it's mm-hmm. still turned by, by a person. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I liked uh, referring to Scott Sumner's work as, as various schemes. Those are the word I would use too. That's okay. <laughs> uh, um, so, so why don't we, in the remaining time I have you here for, Carl, let's just switch over to climate change policy because I know you've you've um, done some work there. And that's one of my areas as well. So re- I guess real quickly in terms of just setting the table, I mean, are you do you buy the idea that yes, um, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions are a negative externality, and therefore there's there's a role for the government to come in and, and use various measures to induce businesses and households to take in those costs into consideration in their behavior? Yeah, I mean, I, more or less. I mean, like, so, so this is another another issue where I think that like people's stated positions get get hyper polarized um, because there's such a big policy on the line. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, you know, um, our, our best available evidence is that there is a potentially very large like externality associated with carbon dioxide. And that um, if we price that, if we, you know, put a cost on emitting carbon dioxide, that that would cause people to internalize or think about like the harm that, that carbon dioxide overall causes, that would cause them to shift, you know, at the margin towards, you know, cleaner fuels or cleaner methods or energy reduction. And they can choose among those what, what's appropriate for them. But the price signal there would cause people to shift more towards uh, the less economic, ecologically damaging you know, um, fuel source or behavior, and that would generally be good. Uh, and so that would make the world better off. And then I think like as sort of a double, a double sort of dividend or whatever you want to call it from this, um, if we could like replace taxes that were generally bad. Um, so like taxes on business with taxes on carbon, uh, then you would be better off. So, you know, you'd be, you'd be taxing bad things, uh, like pollution instead of taxing good things like, uh, entrepreneurship. Okay, so on this, and you know, and there, and there's a whole obviously, and I and I have written on this, like taking the Pagovian case on its own terms. But even if we stipulate that, my concern lately is the the mismatch, as I perceive it, between what the economists are saying when it comes to climate change policy versus not just you know Ocasio Cortez, but even like the UN in the in the documents that they're giving in, to policymakers. So my my favorite go-to example, not since it happened, was last fall, William Nordhaus wins the Nobel Prize for his pioneering work on, you know, economics of climate change. In the, that same weekend, the UN comes out with a special report advising governments on how to limit total warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And what's weird about that, and I don't know if I'm putting you on a spike, but I mean, Nordhaus's own work shows that a 1.5 C target, I mean, for one thing, it's kind of impossible, right. but even if you somehow could achieve it, it would cause way more, it would cause so much net damage that it would actually be better just to, you know, it would be far better just to let climate change run its course. Like in other words, for governments to do nothing. And another way of seeing it is 
the last version I looked at, Nordhaus is, you know, if all the governments of the world perfectly enforced an optimal carbon tax, total warming would be about 3.5 degrees Celsius, which in this debate, I mean, that's huge. That's way beyond what the normal environmental activists would say is way beyond the danger point. And so to me, it, it kind of just shows that there's this, there's huge mismatch between what the public is hearing and what the, you know, not, these, you know, Nordhaus is the guy co-authored with um, Samuelson on the text. So Nordhaus is by no means some, you know, laissez-faire apostle. And and yet the, the, the gap between what the, the so-called consensus climate economists are saying and what everyone's telling, you know, the media and, or the public is being heard, is being told is, is huge. And yet they're also being told, Oh, anybody who denies this stuff, you know, is a, is a denier and doesn't believe in consensus science. Yeah. So, um, I run a foul <laughs> of, of people in, in this, in this area. So I'm going to, I'm going to be diplomatic as I said before, but I, I more or less think that there is nothing wrong with like the Nordhaus work. Um, it may not be perfect, but that it captures most of what we think is important and that, you know, your conclusion about like what the, the effects of the two extremes are is, um, is correct. <laughs> so that's, that's what I, that's what I'd have to say about that. Okay. Well, I guess then, well, let me, let me follow you up. Let me say, let me say this. So, my concern is, and again, you, I realize, you know, if you if you don't want to ruffle feathers, that's fine. But I guess what I'm coming from is I'm concerned that economists who say the perfectly defensible thing that you just said, uh-huh. like, aren't aren't we being um, used, as it were? That in other words, people like clearly the people who were touting the UN document, like I even saw news articles when when that weekend occurred, you know, referring to Nordhaus's winning of the Nobel Prize and then talking about the UN's document, leading the average reader to believe Nordhaus's work supported the UN document when in fact, no, it wouldn't. If anything, you could use Nordhaus's authority to say this latest UN document is absolutely insane and policymakers should look at Nordhaus's work to see why anyone telling them a 1.5C target, you know, is crazy. And yet that's not, so I'm just worried that like the authority of, of mainstream economic science is being used in, in a perverse way here to sort of like get the public to agree to something when actually, you know, these particular experts. So yeah, we're not physicists or chemists, but physicists and chemists don't know about the economic costs of certain climate mitigation policies. So it's, it's in other words, that certain natural scientists and activists are saying, wow, we've looked at some of the projections about what will happen to you know, sea levels or coral reefs or whatever, if we don't do something quick and limit warming to such and such. But the economists can likewise say, well, we've looked at things and we know if you tried to limit warming to 1.5 C, given these models that we have, that would cause a, an incredible amount of, of suffering, like in Africa, where they, you know, they're still, um, you know, getting up to our levels of, of per capita GDP and things like that. So anyway, I'm just, it, I guess I'll just say it for like I'm I'm worried that some economists are being a bit naive and not realizing how their work is being exploited in ways that the work doesn't actually support. Right. Yeah. And I think that's you know, that's sort of like goes to the issue that like I was trying to bring up at the front. It's that like the the debate over the policy has like polarized people in a way that like is not like reflected in the work. And so you're right, like Nord Nordhaus is not like a guy, you know, he's not like a, you know, anywhere on the right he's not anywhere in sort of the like free mar- hyper free market camp or e- even like the the freeman milton freeman like camp i mean he's a pretty like left of center guy um and so 
you would think that we could come to some sort of like consensus about this, but like that position is basically not tenable for anybody to stand in. I'll put it to you that way. Like that's, you know, <laughs> if, if you, if you pick that position, then you're certainly going to be like feel heat from the sort of like UN, you know, so what I would call like mainstream side. Um, and you probably can't find a good home with um, people who are more concerned about like, you know, well, look, I mean, the kind of stuff that you said, like, if we can't, um, if we can't like trust government to go with the reasonable thing, maybe we should like not trust them at all and do nothing. Um, so that, that's, a, that I think is splitting, like intellectually splitting the discipline. And what ends up happening is that like people go to these extremes that like are, are not normally how we would like do economic policy. And that's, you know, like I said, that's been like even a, a personally uh, stressful experience for me. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll, I'll say one last way of putting it and I'm just, you know, you can respond if you want that. I, and, and again, I, I like getting into the theoretical debates and I have a, a paper you know, with the Cato Institute um, that I did with two climate scientists there, Pat Michaels and, um, and Chip uh, Roberts, but, but it was, uh, or sorry, Chip Knappenberger, but they're, um, you know, talking about the tax interaction effect. There's all these little subtleties and it's, it's fun. You know, you want to geek out on that stuff, but stepping <laughs> back, like to me, when somebody says, well, actually, if we could put in a carbon tax in the, on the order of somewhere between 30 and $55 per ton of CO2, and we could use a hundred percent of those revenues, not to fuel one more penny of government spending, but instead to split them evenly between payroll tax rate reductions and corporate income tax rate reductions, so that it's completely, you know, revenue neutral. Um, that could actually boost conventional GDP growth by anywhere from 0.5 to 1% a year, at least over the next 10 years. And it's going to significantly reduce climate change damage. Da, 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 da. I want to just say, what, what are, that's science fiction. That's not going to happen. If you give, you know, Nancy Pelosi permission to go down this path, they're not going to do it the way you just advised and so, uh, you know, like looking at the, the federal income tax and you know, how that came in at pretty low rates. And then, you know, World War One is starts up right afterwards. And the, the top rate just soared up to what was like 70 percent or something a few years later. If the American people had had any inkling of what that was going to turn into in just five or 10 years, they wouldn't have gone along with it. And so that, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from in terms of, yeah, it's fun to geek out on the little minutiae and these these models and things in terms of a carbon tax swap deal, but isn't there also this issue of once Pandora's box is opened, isn't, isn't it going to go beyond what all of the economists in their white lab coats had recommended at the beginning? Yeah. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know about that. So there, so there, there are two things that I would say. So one is, I mean, my traditional position, which I think is just politically untenable now, but like in the ideal would be to sort of like stick to what Milton Friedman says, which is that we're not, politicians. We're not even political scientists, right? Our role in this is to say what we think like the economic effects are going to be. And then, you know, the political process can do with it what they will. Um, that's not really accepted <laughs> at, yeah. this, at this point. And so like, I recognize that, but at the same time, I think that there is a, ro- there is a robust debate over like how, how intense like these things should be. And so like, if you, if you talked about, yes, so there are people out there who want like a $200 a ton tax carbon tax or who want a carbon tax on top of all these like other restrictions and stuff like that. Um, what that would have the effect of is say, you know, 
I think it's usually about a dollar percent or something like that. So that would be like a $2 gas tax, $2 increase in the gas tax. Well, in fact, what you see is that California is out reducing the gas tax. And so there's like, there is political pushback. So I'm not certain that it's just an absolute runaway train. I do admit that there's, there's no chance that our sort of like perfectly efficient sort of like geeked out um, trades are going to be implemented. Whatever is done, it's going to be like messy and, you know, uh, messed up like in, in all kinds of ways. Um, but I don't know that we're it's on the it's on the runaway train scenario either, just because um, there's a limited sort of like tolerance for taxes in the populace apart from. So the efficiency arguments that we want to make just like, you know, taxes suck. I don't want to pay this, you know, and like so the, and that that sort of like political pushback, I think you know, does limit like how, how far this runaway train can go. So that's where I would be on that. Okay. Well, great. Well, um, we're probably ending our time here, Carl. So I want to thank you for spending it with us. Um, is there any thing you want to point the, the listeners to in terms of where they can see your work or any particular of your articles that you you're most proud of that they should go to, to learn more about your worldview? Um, so articles, I don't know what 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 I'd be most proud of, but you know, I'm, I I publish stuff on Bloomberg every day. So they want to go to like uh, <laughs> uh, Bloomberg, uh, you know, that's Bloomberg.com. That's good for me. Or you can go to my uh, Twitter account, which is Carl by Carl Smith, where I have like a link to all my articles. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Carl. All right, thank you. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.